Welcome to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Schaffner, and today my guest is Dr. Caroline Leaf. We're going to be talking all about how to help your child clean up their mental mess. A little bit about Dr. Caroline Leaf. She is a communication pathologist and audiologist and clinical and cognitive neuroscientist, specializing in psychoneurobiology and metacognitive neuropsychology. Her passion is to help people see the power of the mind to change the brain control chaotic thinking and find mental peace. I really hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome everyone to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Christine Schaffner, and I am thrilled today to have our conversation with Dr. Caroline Leaf. We're going to be talking about all about how to clean up your child's mental mess. So welcome, Dr. Caroline. I am so excited to interview you. Oh, thank you. It's lovely to be with you. Dr. Christine, it's really great. Thank you so much. Yeah, absolutely. So off the call, I had shared that I had seen your work at Dave Asprey's, I think it's now 2022 at his biohacking conference. And, you know, I was so impressed with what you were sharing. And I um, really specialize in patients who have struggled, right? They've been through chronic illness. They have a lot in their personal biography that can feel very traumatic at times. And I have just been quoting you um, in my patient care since I've seen you because I was so impressed of how you're pairing this you know, philosophy that we're going to be talking about with neuroscience and looking at the brain and how the brain changes based on our story and our interpretation. So I just want to share that and share that with the audience of why I'm so passionate to have you on. And let's just dive in. I feel that for people who might not know you, a little bit just about how you got into studying the brain. So a little bit about your personal story. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much. And I'm glad you enjoyed the conference. Um, I've been in the field for 38 years, quite a while now. I've been a clinical neuroscientist for 25 years, just over, and I've been doing research for 38 now. I don't practice anymore, but I still do research and write scientific papers and I write books. And the majority of my time now is spent on helping to translate all of this complex psychoneurobiology, which is the understanding of the mind-brain-body connection, into actionable empowering ways to help people to manage their mind which is ultimately the most important thing that most important part of us without our mind we're pretty much dead so our mind is is one of those things that we don't fully and it's not fully processed by people because it's we've become so focused in the last 40 years on the brain and the mind is not the brain and you know we've become so neuroreductionistic and my interest began in this field gosh when I was very young I was very I was going to always be a neurosurgeon and got into medicine and all that and just decided early on that this is not going to be um, I don't want to just stand in the surgery in, in an operating theater and do surgery on brains I want to actually understand the mind and so I shifted direction and went into clinical neuroscience more in communication pathology and all kinds of things in that field and it just uh, sparked my interest to study how the mind and brain work because in the 80s when I was studying the mind and brain were seen as separate and it was understood they were seen as separate and interactive and separate but in very much reliant on each other and then from the mid 90s with the advent of technology that shifted where the mind and brain became one kind of concept mm-hmm. and that's happened that currently is also most of the, the concept as well as that the mind and the brain are the same thing interestingly back in the 80s even though that understanding there of the separation which is thousands of years old mm-hmm. just by the by 
they what they didn't get really right at that point was that they they didn't feel that the brain could change so mm. there was understanding of the separation and and the, and the influence of the mind on the brain but they felt that the brain was sort of this immutable thing that didn't ever change and that didn't make sense and i remember challenging one of my neuroscience professors and long story short saying hey that can't be possible because we as humans are changing so if the mind uses the brain the brain's got to change and he said we'll go do research and that started my research journey initially with traumatic brain injury which was considered to be a waste of time in the 80s because they said well the brain's damaged what can you do you just got to teach your patient to compensate so I was I dove deep into that to show no there's got to be more and got really uh, caught up in seeing how you could take people that had I mean literally had been written off by neurologists as vegetables I mean they don't talk like that anymore thank goodness but you know written off and not able to do anything and and, but but yet working with them over time and it was a lot of hard work seeing them go back to beyond what they were before yes different maybe talking differently walking differently from the the damage to different you know whatever happened to them but function on on an functioning on an intellectual level at such high levels and then seeing the changes emotionally and then I was working in, in academia and schools and um, lecturing and in private practice and I and in South Africa at the time and I and I did a lot of work three days a week for years 25 years plus in the now the then apartheid system which was that terrible mm. system separated every you know, black from white terrible system and fortunately no you know not in existence anymore but although it's still the remnants are still there and it's still you know racism still happens as we all know but it's not a law as such but I worked in the aftermath of that and during the pre and during and post Mandela era and I saw just the damage that was done to communities that were not allowed to develop or not not it stimulates to develop and just the trauma and but working in those communities taught me that no matter what humans have gone through if you just show a person how to understand how they can think and how they can manage their mind and learn and develop their intellect and um, learn, I could, can't fix all their problems, but learn how to manage what they're going through and the trauma of the past and learn how to learn and give people that gift of, of, of learning how to basically manage their mind, you would see massive difference. And it was unbelievable what, what the stories I could tell a thousand stories over a thousand hours of how that changed me as a, as a, as a human. And mm. so I my life to understanding this mind, mind, brain, body connection to help people to be empowered, to recognize that, you know, the stories of our lives are real. They're never going to go away. That trauma that those people experience in the apartheid era and the racism in this country and across the world and trauma that people experience of all different types, it's never going to go away. Mm. Once you experience something, it's always part of you. But what you can do is you can learn how to manage it. You can learn how to recognize what it's doing to you and you don't have to be a duck. That's not your destiny. You can actually learn how to process that and learn how to change what that looks like physically in the brain. And that is the beautiful thing. It's not going to go away, but you can change what it's done inside of your brain and your body. You can change the structural imprint, and that's neuroplasticity. And I did some of the work first work in neuroplasticity back in the late 80s, early 90s in my field. And that's what basically got me to where I am today, which I'm still doing research in neuroplasticity and showing that, um, you know, you can't go and it's not wishful thinking. It's not positive thinking. It's not just, you know, it's not just this. I, I want this or positive affirmations. It's so much more. It's a complete acceptance of what's happened and then a a processing of what's happened and then a um, shift in direction of where you where you want to how you want this to play out in your future. Um, so I continue to do research 
currently, as I said, and with we have an incredible team, and that I also do a lot of work in how long it takes to change, which is always a question that people ask. You know, how long does it take for people to get to a point where they start feeling a sense of peace and freedom, and and despite grief and all these kinds of things. And um, yeah, so that's where I, long answer. That's where I am. Switching all these wonderful things. Hi, everyone. It's Dr. Christine Schaffner. And for being part of my podcast community, I wanted to give you a very special gift. The code SPECTRUM40 to use at the apothecarystore.com for my product, my signature product, a lymphatic drainage cream called Lymphlow. Lymphlow is a staple in all of my patient protocols, and it was formulated to use topically on the neck to help assist the lymphatic system in draining the brain. It has a plethora of other uses from treating your scars, to helping reduce pain and inflammation, to helping to support your liver, your kidneys, or bring blood flow circulation and lymphatic drainage wherever lymph flow is applied. So please check out the code SPECTRUM40 and use at apothecary with an I, store.com. All the information is on the show notes. Thank you so much and enjoy the rest of the podcast. Oh, I love it. I love it. We we should see your brain, right? And you know, the the richness of all the connections, right, with what you just shared and what you've gone through. And it's just amazing, right, how this field has evolved, you know, and the one thing, there, there's a few things I want to tease out of what you've just shared. And most of our conversation will be about these things. But, you know, with my patients, I feel that a lot of them have struggled. They've been gaslit, you know, from the medical system. They've also been on a journey of once they figure out when they're better, you know, it, it can still sometimes be a struggle. And, you know, this whole idea of feeling empowered, you know, through this whole process, I think is one of the strengths is what you're sharing. Because I, I see the difference in people who sit in front of me, those who feel like they are empowered to walk through their experience rather than the people who retreat and feel like they, you know, close down and that they need to be saved, um, if, if that makes sense. And so can you just maybe, maybe comment on that difference? I mean, I know you just shared a little bit about it, but I want people to, who are listening to really kind of get, you know, the beauty of your work and seeing the difference. Thank you. Yeah, that's a great, great point to cover. So in a nutshell, Every experience that we have, and we have obviously trillions of experiences through our lifetime, but every experience we have, we experience with our mind. And our mind is how we think, feel, and choose and, and experience and have that actual, the, all the things that enable you to be able to, with all your senses and understanding and mental aspects and everything, all of that is is driven, is basically mind work. And your mind takes that experience and puts it into the brain and it, I know this sounds very little, but it, it literally is that experience becomes um, a, a change structurally inside of your brain. Your brain responds to the energy that comes from those experiences um, in terms of genetic expression. So it makes proteins basically to capture that experience as energy or as, uh, as vibrations inside of proteins that grow into these branch-like structures. That's what memories are. Uh, these vibrations inside these protein branches are clustered together to form thoughts. So an experience can be likened to a thought. An experience is a thought. An experience has lots of detail. That detail is captured in the memories within the thought. So if you think of an experience with, the, with all the details of the experience, 
inside the brain it is looks it looks like a, a thought tree with all the details being the memories so thoughts are made of memories as an experience is made of details if that makes sense mm. and as we build this experience into the brain so it also the mind brain that that mind brain connection then also stimulates a change inside every cell of our body and our body also captures a form of that memory in terms of also these protein structures that are like threaded threaded beads that form carpets so it's, it's like a, it's it sort of forms like a little carpet that is like a skeleton inside the cell so mm. we have a form of every memory in its full capacity in the mind as energy waves in the brain as tree-like structures and then in a different sort of form inside the cells of our body so it becomes very embedded and intertwined now the mind is de dealing with space and time and and present past and future it's embodied in that the mind is the, is driving not only the mental aspects of our humanity but the mind is also driving the neurophysiology of the brain and the body so the fact that your heart can beat and the fact that you make 800,000 cells every second while you're alive and the fact that your lungs are helping you breathe and the fact that your that your um, your brain is able to drive the functions of your body and your endocrine system all these things that's driven by the mind the mind is driving all those neurophysiological aspects and the mind is also driving the mental aspects so this intertwining this embodied mind um, that often people debate with it between dualism and saying that that's wrong the mind is actually and brain are one it's not that they want they separate but they work it's embodied the mm. mind embodied in the brain and the physiology so therefore every experience is stored in the phys in the physical and that physical the brain and the body don't understand time and so for example if you have a trauma if you lose a loved one or have any or you have some kind of what uh, maybe an abuse of some sort or experience a, a deep loss through, through an illness or whatever you whatever happens from the big to the small stuff that that throws us and that is impactful in our lives that is processed as an experience into the brain and the body and the mind in three places in the mind it's dynamic in time in the brain and the body it's fixed in time so therefore when someone re-experiences through a trigger an unprocessed um, experience they, they, and they get triggered that's what we would refer to as PTSD so people would then re-experience the event as though this it's happening right now and that's because the mind is understands it can move between the present past and future but the body and brain can't the body and brain are in the now and so therefore when a memory is activated then that feels like it's happening now and the 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 more uh, the less processed the, the memory is the stronger the reactive experience so that is why it is so important for us to process what we're going through because in processing you don't get rid of anything like i already mentioned but you change the you sort of tone down the impact you change that structure so it's still there but instead of it being this huge glaring wound it's now become a scab wound where it's just a bit of a bump and a bit tender but it's bearable to give you an analogy but that takes processing and and, and what we do as humans is a lot of our stuff that we go through we don't process so mm -hmm. we've got these wounds and we and wounds we, we develop coping strategies so kind of like band-aids on the wounds and those coping strategies aren't always, you know, they may be effective in the moment. And we coping strategies generally are, are created in the moment just to cope. And, and that's okay. That's why they're called coping strategies. 
but in the long run they're not the most effective way um, of sustaining you know a healthy life and they tend to be viral in nature in that they creep and they they creep into other areas of our lives and don't just stay exclusive to that particular area unfortunately so this is why processing of traumas is so important and processing of bad experiences and processing our bad habits you know rewiring our bad habits and that kind of thing are so important otherwise we kind of get you know stuck in these coping mechanisms that aren't always that effective mm-hmm. so one thing that we took Steve, i think if that, that answers your question we can, yes. we can either suppress and not process and um you know these for a moment i want to just hang around that for example when people go through major trauma or grief of some sort the worst thing you can do is tell a person to process it now and there's been a lot of therapeutic approaches and a lot of kind of philosophical approaches that have said not so much philosophical more therapeutic um, and psychological approaches that have said you've got to process it now before you know get talk about this now and Mm -hmm. that actually is the worst thing that you can do because as humans we are so unique in how we experience our experiences um that's for some people and for most actually that to, to, to talk about something that's just happened now it's too raw and it can actually make it way worse and we need to find that balance between not talking about it straight away unless we want to if some people talking about it straight away is is, is the best thing for them but in the large majority of cases um it is not the case it's different for every person so someone will talk straight away someone will talk in three days someone in three months someone in three years but eventually we do have to process it but we've got to be in tune with ourselves in order to know when to process, when to know that, okay, this has actually now got to the point where I can face this. It's going to be hard. I'm going to have to learn to endure this, but I need to because I can see it's now impacting. When we do that, when we work according to the right time frame, which we can learn that time frame by developing a lot of self-regulation and mind management, we can learn to read ourselves and see when we're ready. doesn't mean it's less painful. It's still going to be very painful, but it's less dangerous to our psyche. In other words, it doesn't impact us in a way that is incapacitating, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that that so many things there, and you know, some of the techniques that I've shared with my patients, or they've shared that have been helpful for them, those that can get over, you know, or the process, or they're in this more empowered place. There is conversations around like EMDR or limbic mm-hmm. retraining of sorts or other forms of, you know, therapy. Are you, the process that we're going to share, you know, with your work, is that enough? Or do you feel like pe- like those types of therapies are also a way to help the brain uh, or the mind um, and the mind and the brain, right? Process yes. these, um, these traumatic events. So my work is not a technique it's a working on systems for how we can how information gets into the mind brain body network how to recognize the impact of that information and how to then either grow it if it's good information like you know a great experience you want to grow that learning you want to grow that and or if it's a toxic experience like a trauma or something or a bad habit you want to identify that impact and you want to reverse engineer that so my work is the systems to do that. So things like EMDR would fit are, with, are techniques that you'd fit into the system. So it's very key uh-huh. for people to get changes happening in their life and to feel empowered, to be able to have peace and to be able to still grieve and be sad and have depression and anxiety. These are all parts of being human, but to not have them to incapacitate one, to get to that point, we need to understand how this system of getting information in and out works. So for example, if we just do EMDR and we don't 
do EMDR within a framework where you actually aligns with the mind brain body connection so you just use only mdr emdr which no therapist generally would do they always would work it in a context but i'm just giving that as an example yeah. yes um, it's a technique it's an active technique that you can use that would would basically be um in step five of the system of how information gets into your brain so if you do it without steps one through four you're going to not get the same level of benefit and it will be sort of like a band-aid on the wound and not achieve the full impact that it could have. But if you um, prepare your context through um, doing the, because your brain goes through five basic stages, um, your mind-brain-body connection goes through five basic stages, even as you're listening to me now, to get information in. So we want to take advantage of those stages. So therefore, EMDR fits it into that context or cognitive behavior therapy, great in step four and step five, um, particularly in step five, um, positive affirmations, fantastic for step five. But any of those alone do not have sustainability. And that's what the research shows. Meditation, fantastic. But if you, it's only basically preparing the brain. It doesn't even, it hasn't even gone to steps one through five, which is where actual changes take place. So mm-hmm. the reason meditation is so incredibly effective in calming down on neurophysiology is because that's what it's designed to do. Deep breathing, it's information to the brain and the body meditative, any kind of mindfulness meditation are activities that are going to calm down on your physiology and prepare our mind-brain-body connection for the work that we need to do to change. But you can't get stuck there. So it's kind of like a plane taking, uh, going at an airport getting ready to fly. Engineers and all the people get everything ready in the tower. And But if you don't take off, you don't go anywhere. So meditation is important for preparation, but you do have to do something else. You have, otherwise, you're just going to get stuck in that same place mm-hmm. and never forward that's a nice way of understanding it we also have to know how to take off yeah which is a very organized process as we know um you have to know how to fly very incredibly controlled and organized process and we need to know how to land the plane otherwise we're going to crash and what's happening with a lot of these techniques and things that people do is they use them in a higgledy-piggledy way so there's a bit of meditation there's a bit of cbt there's a bit of emdr there's a bit of psychodynamic theory there's a bit of dialogue therapy or some really good techniques where there's deep thinking and processing Mm -hmm. But if it's done in a higgledy-piggledy way, mm. a, bit of, a bit of that, the benefits are not quite the same and not as sustainable. So we're seeing a lot of research coming through showing that CBT is effective in the short term but not the long term, and meditation is great for the moment, and but it's not in the long term. It definitely teaches people to be better at coping with their lives, for sure. I'm not denying any of these techniques. All of them have absolute wonderful benefit, but they have so much more when put into the right framework if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that's um, such a great point to share with everybody because I'm sure people are listening and are like, you know, I've done this, I've done that, I've done this. And, you know, why, you know, why are, is some of the patterns still emerging, you know, for myself? So this brings a greater macro um, look at how, how you really see these changes occur. And so this would be the neurocycle, correct? And do you want to walk us through your five-step kind of way of looking at this cycle that the brain and the mind go through? Sure. So um, as I mentioned earlier, every experience is, is being literally grabbed by the mind. The mind is your filtered processes. In your mind, there's a lot of work being done, excellent work being done in the field where we talk about a biofield, which is nothing weird. It's pure quantum physics. It's pure physics. It's electromagnetics. It's nothing weird. We it's talk just... a lot about that on my podcast. Okay, people, are, people are very open to... Oh, wonderful. Okay, yes. I never quite... I never, yeah. that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Yeah. Sometimes I mention the word biofield and people think. Yeah, that. no, I, I love talking about the biofield. So please indulge us. 
Wonderful. So the biofield is pretty much the energy that's generated from the mind. The mind is your aliveness. When you're dead, your mind is no longer functioning through your body. And that's another whole spiritual and philosophical discussion. So we'll just stick with the current discussion. And your mind, when you're alive and active, is creating a biofield. It creates the biofield, which is this electromagnetic and gravitational field that's around every human and through every human. And that's what's driving our physiology that I spoke about earlier. But not only is it that physiological aspect, it's that mental aspect too, that psychological aspect too of experiencing you know, love, joy, peace, whatever, all those things. So essentially, the first stage is that experience is going to be grabbed by the mind and the mind is going to process it and put it into the brain. So the mind needs a substrate and it needs a very sophisticated substrate into which to put the experience in order for the experience to materialize. And that's what the brain is. The brain doesn't think the amygdala doesn't make you do anything. You often read these these articles, and I read them, and I think, my goodness, if these people just knew what they were actually saying. You science articles too about the amygdala does this, and the corpus callosum is this, and the frontal lobe's doing that. It can't do anything. What's doing it is your mind. Your mind is using the frontal lobe, and the frontal lobe is designed for for conscious, deliberate, intentional, focused type thinking. That's its structure. And as it's working in that way, it activates the pathways to the amygdala, which is like a perceptual library. And in other words, the it's if you think of a, an analogy, could be something like a house. A house is not alive. A house has rooms, and people come into it and and make it a bedroom, and make it a all beautiful, and and make it a lounge, and 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 kitchens that do things. And so there's life happening. So it's the the person, the humanity, the aliveness that is is making that house come alive if you, if you, and that's kind of what the brain is like it's a house with very sophisticated rooms in it and those rooms are all designed for a specific purpose like you're not going to cook on your bed you're going to cook in the kitchen and it's that kind of idea very simplified analogy but it's it's what your brain and body are, are designed to do and they have this um, physiological component that is enabling you to function as a human in life but the aliveness is coming from your mind so the neurocycle is a word that I've given for a system that I developed over 38 years ago and started researching. Then I developed a theory based on my work in neuroplasticity and with traumatic brain injectations and people with trauma and um, people with cerebral palsy and people with dementias and autism and all those things that and, and neurological issues like Parkinson's and so on. So different two different camps are neurological issues like Parkinson's, dementias and so on, and then trauma and um, traumas and um, certain types of um, just learning problems and things like that. So these were two different sort of camps. Um, and so I developed a theory and developed a system. And the system is this framework into which you can put all these techniques. But this framework is essential for to, to work within because it's how you will make the mind-brain-body connection work properly. So if you want to have real changes in your mind-brain-body connection, it's not going to come from... Um, uh, sticking on some, uh, lying under some kind of machine or putting some kind of, you know, the biohacking devices, they're great, they're fantastic, but they are techniques that are really mm-hmm. at five. Mm-hmm. They are only as good as what your mind is. So your mind is what actually primes your body to be able to take advantage of the food we eat, the minerals and, sub- and supplements we take, of the any kind of biohacking if you've been to Dave Asprey's and if your people follow that sort of thing, any kind of biohacking device is as good as is only as good as your mind. Mm-hmm. And you heard me say that at the conference last year. So essentially, the neuro ha- neurocycle um, is 
helping you as a human to make your mind work in the best way possible to in order for you to then decide what else you need in your life to enhance your physiology or physical part of you and to make sure that you, you know, make the right decision. So it's got multiple purposes. It's to get your mind tuned to, to a point where you can recognize traumas that are holding you back, bad habits that are holding you back, tuned enough to, to recognize you need more knowledge, you, your body's, you, your brain's bored, our, brain, our mind gets very bored, and then our brain doesn't, it needs certain, it needs exercise. And when you learn new knowledge, your brain is exercised in a way that new, that reading fantasy, learning new knowledge are the only ways that reading, deep reading, thinking deeply, those are the only ways to really exercise your brain so that it develops more resilience to cope with life and all kinds of stuff. So if we, like now in our current environment, our current climate, people don't read as much. And when they do read, it's reading is very, they, people do read, I should rephrase that. People read, but they read in a very surface way. But that deep reading where you de read deeply for understanding, where you read fantasy, where you read for pleasure, where you read those things, that is essential. Where you learn new knowledge, where you're learning new things, that's absolutely essential to exercise the brain so that the brain is then in a healthier place to receive the nutrients, to receive the supplements, to whatever biohack, to um, then be stronger, to face the, the traumas, to face the, and all that kind of stuff. So the neurocycle is enabling you to get into that kind of state. So it's putting you into a peak physical, uh, peak mental performance in order to be in a peak physical performance in order to then benefit from all the other great things that you can do, which are all pretty much active reaches. So an active reach, I keep saying that word, is step five of the neurocycle. And the, the five steps of the neurocycle are basically, first of all, it's, it's a gathering of awareness where you are taking in stuff. It's the first step. It's, it's creating a very specific type of awareness. The fifth step, and I'm going to jump for a reason, is the action that you do. So the technique, the, the, the EMDR, or the um, biohack, biohack mm -hmm. you know to do, or the affirmation, or the technique, the CBT technique. But you've got three steps in between, and those three steps are absolutely key. So, so are key in the process. So mind meditation um, comes just before the five steps. So I talk about mind uh, brain preparation or neurophysiological preparation. That would include meditation breathing that kind of stuff i give lots of examples in my books and i also have an app called the neurocycle app which is available on itunes and google play as well as web we have a web version as well and there's a special on the web version as well the first kind of thing you do is brain preparation and that can be as short as two minutes it can be as long as you want 20 minutes as long as you want then you go into the neurocycle which is the first phase is this gathering awareness it's focused awareness very focused awareness on whatever specific task whether it's a learning task whether it's a detoxing task gathering awareness of how you're showing up it's a very specific focused gathering awareness so it's not just a general awareness which happens from the brain preparation it's a focused awareness so for example let's say that you're focusing on um, that you notice that you are feeling very exhausted and burnt out so that's how you're showing up in your life you're showing up Physical, your behaviors are a physical exhaustion, um, emotions or feelings of overwhelm and burnout, uh, maybe even depression and anxiety. Your behaviors may, in, in, it's, as well as being exhausted, it may be that you just creativity is dropping, your body sensations or your body's just very weak, and your perspective on life is that you know life's kind of sucking at the moment, whatever. So that's a, that's a simple example of the four emotional warning signals that you gather awareness of in the first step, how you're showing up. So the first step is how you're showing up. It's very simple in the app, very simple in the book. 
the next step is to reflect. So why do I feel this? The who, the what, the when, the where, the why. You've got to go deeper. And this is hugely missing from our current technological day and age where mm. we gather, we're pretty good at becoming aware. In fact, we're excellent at becoming generally aware. We're excellent at pretty good at gathering awareness as well. Not maybe as organized as we could be. And people, when they start doing this gather awareness, they, they, it's radic- it radicalizes how people functions we we get such incredible feedback from this and we see it in our research as well when people go to reflection it totally transforms their life it's like a prism if you shine a white light through a prism that comes out as a rainbow on the other side so Mm -hmm. instead of just seeing the white light you see the color on the other side there's depth and you go to a level of depth that tunes it helps you to tune into the depths of your mind and your your mind has this very spiritual and unconscious component that is where all your intelligence and wisdom resides and you can tap into that. And that's really key to, as humans, we need to tap into that all the time. And with our very technological age, we've lost a bit of that skill and it's impacting people's mental health. If we don't get that depth of reflection, it will impact. It will make you feel depressed. You will feel depressed and not know why you feel depressed. You'll feel hovering anxiety and not know why you feel hovering anxiety and that kind of thing. And then the third step is you need to, um, this the first two steps activate a tremendous amount of, activity in the networks across the mind brain body our psycho neurobiological networks and what you want to do is is is, um, take advantage of that genetically so it's kind of like a mind dump it's not journaling journaling is 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 step five is one of the things you can do in step five this is a pure mind dump you literally write down in pattern format whatever's coming up from the first two the preparation and the first two steps and i've developed a system called the metacogging metacogs to do this which helps to capture this um what's just coming up and it's very mind-blowing it's very powerful um tool very when you get into it difficult to get into it because it's quite challenging it makes you think very deeply um it can show you things that you sometimes not ready to look at and if you get that neon sign that says hey you're not ready yet that's fine you follow it there's no rush you don't do this in a day you do this five-step process daily over time and i'll tell you briefly about the time in a moment then the fourth step is to try and make sense of what you've written down. It's a, this has happened, what can I do about it type step. And then that leads to, okay, what action can I take? And that's where the affirmations and cognitive behavior techniques and that sort of thing comes in. Um, and the EMDR as well. And EMDR at this point would be a recognition, for example, that there's definitely some deep-seated stuff here and I'm backing to pull it up. So you do the EMDR as an action to help pull it up and then you repeat that cycle with what's come up to be able to process the stuff that EMDR brings up. So it's just because we, we mentioned it earlier on, I thought I'd just throw that in there. Yeah, um, yeah. That's basically the the, 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 the neurocycle. In terms of the time frame, there's a lot of, there's not as much work as there should be out there. And this is, my team and I do a lot of this work is everyone talks about habits and everyone's, it's on everyone's tongues and minds. We know that we learn a little bit at a time. Everyone knows that it's an instinctive knowledge, but there's very little research actually showing the length of time. And the whole thing of 21 days to build a habit is a myth. You don't build habits in 21 days. Um, you actually make major changes in 21 days, but that those changes aren't stabilized. And in order to stabilize any kind of changes, and when I say stabilize, you'll change the, the network, the mind-brain-body network, through doing the neurocycle daily for 21 days or doing whatever you do for 21 days. But if you stop there, you're going to revert back because you haven't stabilized and turned that into something that is um, going to actually drive how you function. That hasn't become a driver. In order for something to become a driver, you have to have the second phase, which is more or less a 42-day phase, which in total takes you up to about nine weeks. Um, So anywhere between 59 and 63 days is what it takes to actually form 
a habit and assuming that you and, and a habit or to make a change a habit building in or to break down and build a new habit or to break down a trauma um, a, to understand and process a trauma and rebuild a way of coping and when it comes to trauma i just want to put in a cautionary note right as i'm talking right here now is very seldom will you solve any problem in nine weeks what's going to happen is it starts the process so for example i've worked with very severely traumatized um, sexually traumatized people and um, people that have gone through sexual trauma and it's taken them multiple cycles of nine weeks in order to work through all the issues that it's caused in their life mm. um, so that's just as, as a cautionary thing so not everything's going to be it but it's the cycle of it's very organization the mind and body network requires tremendous organization which is what i'm explaining but it's very clearly laid out in the book and in the app and that walk you through it like a therapeutic process it's beautiful. It's such a beautiful body of work you've created. And I'm just thinking about all the applications, you know, for my patients. And, you know, again, the 63-day comment, I, I think, is really wise, obviously, with caution, as you're saying, because um, I think people put a lot of, you know, expectations on themselves, like, oh, I'm going to change my life in 21 days or, you know, these short amounts of time when it, it takes a little time for all of this change to sink in um, in the networks to be laid, as you mentioned. And, you know, I, I want to just apply this to children as we kind of wrap our time together, like how, you know, this, this whole body of work, how have you applied it to children and children going through their traumas? Because I feel like a lot of, you know, our work when we are adults is, you know, going to heal our childhood, right? So wouldn't that be yeah. lovely, you know, to heal children along the way? Yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I just released a book a few months back on how to help your child um, with this process. So it's a very, it's it's taking the concept of the neurocycle down to a level that's incredibly easy to apply. And in fact, Christine, we have so many adults that are using this for inner child work, this particular book called How to Help Your Child Clean Up Their Mental Mess. Same neurocycle process, but just broken down into such a simple way that you can teach a three-year-old how to do this. And so the um, the book that I've written is filled with um, very simple tips and techniques, and it's great for parents, for caregivers, for teachers, for anyone working with groups of children. Uh, up to the, This particular book is basically from two to three, two, two, two to three years of age through 10, and then my other works, anything from 11 onwards. But as I said, so many adults are using the two together, the two books together. We have also put into the NeuroCycle app, we've put a section for parents to help their children as well. So there's that section added into the app as well. So essentially, um, we all know that there's a crisis with mental health. We all know that it's worse it's ever been with children ever in the history of mankind. Children used to always do pretty well when it came to mental health surveys, global mental health surveys. It's now flipped where children are doing a really, uh, really bad thing. And this is a symptom of a larger problem. And, and the mental health symptom, I mean, this mental health pandemic is a symptom of a larger problem. And that larger problem is that we're not teaching our children how to develop the mental skills to manage their mind. And we have a biomedical model, as you know, Christine, that's very dominant. And that my biomedical model is all about diagnosing and labeling with the assumption, and I say assumption because it's not science, it's assumption that there's an underlying biological cause so if a child is displaying any kind of behavioral issue or emotional issue and they'll, they'll kind of get whipped off to a psychiatrist and even psychologists and they'll get diagnosed and labeled based on a checklist and adults too it's not just children that this is happening too and it's on the assumption that oh there's an underlying biological cause like you have a problem with a pancreas for diabetes which is just not the right comparison it's not the correct science it's been disproved yet it's still the dominant dominant approach and 
what it's caused is a bigger problem. It's caused, it's made the mental health challenges of children worse. And in our current technological age, it's even more important to work on mind. As I mentioned already, if we don't think deeply, if we don't read, if we don't build on that aspect of our mind, our brain will suffer. And our children are, are growing up addicted to screens. And I'm not, I'm totally for technology. It's brilliant. But if you don't manage the technology, mm-hmm. if you don't balance the technology with screen, with things like if a child's watching TV, let them do build Lego while they're watching TV. If they've done an hour of TV, they do an hour of reading. You know, there's simple things that you can do that you can benefit from both mediums and not just, you know, to cut out one for the exclusion of the other. It's, that's not the need. But the, the if we don't get our children to think deeply, if we don't get them reading, if we don't get them, if we balance, don't balance technology, if we don't get them to manage technology, then the, it distorts the way the, the brain is only doing what the mind tells it to do. The brain can't it's just going to get stuck in patterns it literally gets stuck and then the mind has to work through these stuck patterns and the mind is wise enough to recognize and to change that so you can rewire you can always change those patterns they're not your destiny but that's what we have to teach children to do and so we can be proactive in this process from young we can teach our children the mental skills to understand that if i'm sad there's not something wrong with me this is how i can process why i'm sad a child who's battling at school, this doesn't necessarily mean that they have some kind of brain damage. It could mean that they just are going through some, they don't know how to learn or you know, they, they something's going on that, that's affected their emotional side, is affecting their learning. And it's to be able to give a child the tools and mental skills to understand what they're being exposed to and to help to deal with the thoughts that with all of us, adults and children, thoughts can get activated very, very quickly and thoughts are in the non-conscious mind and they can get activated too quickly and if we don't process them and they go back into the unconscious mind, you know, like a, think of a volley of balls coming out of, you know, you train someone on tennis and you can shoot out those balls to come out fast. Sometimes um, this is what, as humans, we're experiencing. With children, there's a volley of thoughts and volley of experiences and volley of stuff. If we don't teach them how to manage that, it builds a lot of um, damage in the brain. And, you know, reading a story to a child and is and teaching them how to, say I'm sad and this is what I'm going to do about how what I'm how to understand why I'm sad and giving them the tools to express that sadness and being able to read a story and think deeply about that story I mean these are I talk about this all in the book with the techniques I'm giving doing it really fast but it's very simple filled with techniques and tips and things you actually totally changing the child's mental health and brain health and equipping them proactively to um, literally manage what they're being exposed to so, yeah, I feel strongly about this. I've worked so long in this field and worked a lot with children and families and a lot of family therapy. And that's why I'm very excited it's time to bring a book out to equip parents and teachers with this knowledge. Yeah, I'm so glad that you turned your energy and focus to this because, um, as you said, it's just a crisis out there. And, you know, I, I just think about how hard it must be to be a kid these days, right? You know, between you know, what they went through COVID and then also, you know, all the technologies and all the, you know, I couldn't imagine having like, you know, social media when I was in high school, you know, so it's just, there's, you know, so much that, you know, we need to learn how to parent, you know, differently. And so, no, I'm, I'm really happy. And I'm, I have my, my daughter's um, five, but I'm just thinking about, you know, having this framework for her. Is there an age, um, like how young you can start with this? Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, my youngest patients were two and three years of age. So this oh. book is geared right from that age group. So you'll see throughout the book, I've got the um, how to teach it to a three to five year old and five to you know, six to eight year old and eight to 10 year old. So there's the, the developmental 
stages, how to, you know, what wording you would use to help a child to express themselves when they're two versus when they're 10, that kind of thing. So this particular book is how, is aimed at ages two through 10. So it's geared to the parent, but the, it, it explained to the parent, and then there's little blocks in the book of this is how you would explain this to your child, and this is how you'd explain a suggested way. And then you can obviously paraphrase that, and then I've given the age groups as well, and lots of techniques. And I also cover things like trauma, how to recognize the signs and signals of trauma, and social issues, and identity issues, and sleep issues, and you know those kinds of things which are major sort of the five sort of major areas that that are a problem. So yeah, so it's it's very much um, hands on. It's it's not just a, a light read. You know, this is not something that you're going to open the book and find the answer in the first page. It, the best way to help a child is for you to help yourself. So I always recommend that the parent learns this for themselves. Yes. I would get, recommend get on the NeuroCycle app, start doing this for yourself and demonstrate this to your children. Get an area in your home that you say, this is our special mind corner or brain corner or NeuroCycle corner. Kids love big words like that. And yeah. you demonstrate, you have a bad day, you come home and you, and you actually go through the NeuroCycle and you demonstrate to the child this happened to me, I got mad, I'm sorry, I got irritated, this is why I did this. You actually work through the process yourself and through demonstration, then then you teach the child, let me, let me show you how to do it. And so all of that's laid out very clearly in, in the book. And you'll be proactive. I mean, teach your five-year-old how to do this. You know, by the time they are 10 and the inevitable challenges of adolescence looming around the corner are going that are going to hit them, you've equipped them with mm. so much skill to be able to deal with that. Oh, what a gift. Oh, what a beautiful gift. And thank you for, again, creating that book for us. And, and we'll have everything in the show notes on how to reach out and find all of Dr. Caroline Leaf's great work. But I, I just wanted to give you the opportunity um, to share anything else that's on your heart. You're, I mean, I feel like I could talk to you for three hours just about, you know, everything you've shared. I, I just love what you're doing. And I, I want to, you know, again, keep diving into your work because there's so many nuggets and everything that you've shared with us today. Everybody listen to this again and put it on repeat. But is there anything else on your heart or your mind that you'd love to share with the audience as we wrap? Well, maybe just the fact that the neurocycle really provides like the relief of finally being able to open a window to the soul that appeared jammed. You know, that's something that so many people will email me about and send direct messages and put on comments is that we feel like we're stuck and jammed and, you're, you know, the soul being the mind and whatever you want to use, you know, that soul uses a term very broadly. But we, we can feel so jammed and it can provide the relief of being able to open that window and, you know, just be able to control that body and slow the process down and then just also the recognition that you can't change what's happened to you, but you can change what it looks like inside of you and therefore how it plays out into your future. So I'd encourage that sort of thinking. And you know, on my social media platform, it's Dr. Caroline Lee for my social media handles. We put up posts every day that are in everything that I do. We're trying to create posts and things that help people to, and all my podcasts and things as well, to understand these concepts in little bite-sized chunks. So it's a it's a good place to to learn this as well. My podcast is called Cleaning Up the Mental Mess. Um, I cover all these aspects as well, as you as you know. And I think, you know, web page is drleaf.com. You get a lot of stuff there. And that app is called NeuroCycle. You can get that on iTunes and Google Play. And we have a web version, which is really great. Because you, can, you can use your, you can get a nice big visual of it on your computer screen. It also works on your phone, obviously. Um, yeah, I think that's everything. 
Great, great. Well, you are very, you know, energetic with all that you're creating. I, I just um, love your passion. And, you know, again, I, you've really given us a lot of gold um, and wisdom. So thank you so much for being here and sharing all of this with us. And everyone, please check out all of the beautiful resources Dr. Leaf has created for each of you. So thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It was a lovely interview. I enjoyed it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you all for listening to the Spectrum of Health podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation today with Dr. Caroline Leib. Please check out all of her wonderful information in her work in the show notes. And I want to thank you so much for being part of my podcast community. Have a beautiful day.